NPR has obtained more than 1,600 pages of what had been secret inspection reports on U.S. immigration detention facilities. Inspectors found what they called barbaric, negligent, and filthy conditions inside. More on what the investigation has brought to light coming up on this Wednesday, August 16th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, it's the anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. Voters in the swing state of Nevada say inflation is still very much their top issue. I voted for Biden, but then I regretted it because the economy went down. It just seemed like it, it went that way to me. It just seemed like as soon as he took over, it was kind of like, whoop. In the Women's World Cup semifinals, Australians fell silent as their team, the Matildas, lost to England. The team's rise has been called a feminist cultural reckoning. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Georgia prosecutor spearheading a racketeering and conspiracy case against former President Donald Trump and 18 of his associates is proposing the defendants be arraigned the week of September 5th. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has also officially requested that a judge set the trial date for March 4th, 2024. That's just eight days before the state holds a Republican presidential primary. Indictments in Georgia and Washington, D.C. are related to Trump's alleged attempt to subvert the will of the people and overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump also faces charges involving his handling of classified documents, hush money payments, and was found liable on civil charges of sexual assault. Trump has disputed all of the accusations as politically motivated. Uh, Trump was indicted yet again this week. It has not made a difference with many or most Republican voters to this point, it seems. But NPR's Domenico Montaner reports Republican candidates are grappling with how to handle Trump at their first debate next week, whether he shows up or not. Trump is refusing to sign a pledge to support whomever the Republican nominee is after the GOP primaries. And that's one of the requirements of getting on the debate stage for the Republican Party's first debate next week in Milwaukee. That throws into limbo whether or not the party's frontrunner for the nominee nation will even be there. Other campaigns are having to prep for the debate with Trump top of mind, and they're going to have to figure out how or if they'll talk about the quartet of indictments that Trump is now facing and the 91 counts against him. To this point, leading opponents of Trump have been reluctant to explicitly go after him using the allegations. That may have to change if they hope to have any chance to defeat him. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Seeking re-election, President Biden celebrating the anniversary of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act designed to bring down health care costs, promote climate action, and boost tax collections. We created more jobs in two years than any administration has in a single four-year term. Republican critics argue proud. Republican critics argue the legislation would make inflation worse. The fires on Maui not only have destroyed the lives and homes of many, they've also put the economic engine of the island, tourism, in jeopardy. NPR's Jason DeRose has the latest. Immediately after the fires, the message from elected officials was, don't come, it's not safe. That upset many who make their living from the travel industry here, hotel workers, restaurant servers, surfing instructors. But that earlier message has shifted more recently. Here's Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson. Please don't go to the west side of Maui. Don't go to West Maui. Um, obviously, there's so much going on with trying to rebuild it. But the rest of Maui is still open. Still open for business. Last year, nearly 3 million visitors spent almost $5.7 billion here. More than half the island's jobs are directly related to tourism. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. COVID-19 cases have been spiking in greater Boston over the last month as a new variant of the coronavirus becomes more common. But on Radio Boston today on WBUR, a nationally recognized infectious disease expert said there is no reason for alarm. WBUR's Kyrie Thompson has more. City data shows COVID cases in Boston have increased more than 90% over the last two weeks since the onset of a new variant called EG5. But Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of Brown University School of Public Health and former coordinator of the Biden administration's COVID response, says new variants are both inevitable and nothing to worry about yet. If one of them is really different, if it will escape our vaccines, if it's make our uh, treatments not effective, that will be the moment we need to sound the alarm and say we've got a real problem. EG5 is not that. Ja maintains that getting vaccinated and taking new treatments like Paxlovid can help prevent hospitalizations from the disease. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Kyrie Thompson. Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara is looking to get a criminal driving charges filed against her dropped. In Boston Municipal Court today, Lara's lawyer argued the city councilor was not properly given a citation against her, and that's a violation of state law. Councilor Lara is accused of speeding down a residential street in Jamaica Plain in June and slamming into her home. A home, that is. Police say she did not have a valid driver's license and was operating an unregistered car. She'll be back in court next month after the city's preliminary election. A survey released today shows that the reliability of electric charging stations remains a problem for Boston-area drivers. The report from J.D. Power shows about 20 percent of EV owners in greater Boston reported a failed charging session at a public station. Still, Boston ranked fourth best in the nation for charging reliability. Massachusetts is looking to shift ownership from gasoline to electric vehicles by about 1 million by 2030. Currently, that number is about 70,000. For the seventh year in a row, UMass Amherst has taken the cake for the best campus dining in the country. That's according to an annual survey of students conducted by the Princeton Review. The director of residential dining is Gary DiStefano. He says the dining department's secret sauce is the passion and diversity of its staff. We have 20 different languages that are spoken in all of our dining commons. We have people who hail from all around the world. So they're the subject matter experts when it comes to different global cuisines. So we give them the opportunity to really showcase these different meals and the authenticity is there. He says the most popular dishes are the global ones, including ramen from Southeast Asia, pupusas from Latin America, and chicken tikka masala from India. Plenty cloudy and drizzly this afternoon and again tonight, settling at about 65 degrees overnight. Tomorrow, cloudy, foggy, a lot like today with light rain. Could make it, though, to the mid to upper 70s. And then for Friday, the added attraction of thunderstorms warming to about the mid 80s on Friday. Right now, it's looking, though, like we should have a lovely weekend. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For more than 95 years, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at mott.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. The Biden administration is under intense political pressure from Republicans over immigration, who accuse the president of being too lenient toward migrants. Now the administration is locking up more unauthorized immigrants and asylum seekers in detention facilities. And NPR has exclusively obtained more than 1,600 pages of confidential inspection 
in reports examining conditions inside those facilities. They describe barbaric practices, negligent medical care, racist abuse, and filthy conditions. NPR's Tom Dreisbach reports, and just a warning, the story includes some disturbing details. There's this home video of Kamiyar Samimi in the 1990s playing with his two young daughters on a slide at a little green park in Colorado at dusk. He was born in Iran, moved to the U.S. to study computer science in the 1970s. He got a green card, built a family, and on this video he tells his daughter in Farsi to wave hi to grandma back in Iran. He loved it here. That's one of his daughters, Neta Samimi Gomez. Netta told me that growing up, you could always find her dad with a can of Pepsi in his hand, smelling like oil from his job as a mechanic, watching NASCAR and other American TV. We would sit down in the summers and watch Law & Order. That was our thing. Like, <laughs> he wanted me to become a lawyer. Because of Law & Order? Because of Law & Order, yeah. Kamiyar Samimi also struggled with drugs. It started as a kid back in Iran when he was given opium for tooth pain. In the U.S., he was prescribed methadone, which he took to manage opioid use disorder for more than two decades. He and Netta were close, but by the time she was an adult, they didn't see each other all the time. Then came November 2017. We had been trying to reach him to invite him over for Thanksgiving, and we weren't able to get a hold of him on his phone at all. You must have been worried during yes. that time. And then even more so worried when I found out he was detained by ICE. Immigration and Customs Enforcement had arrested her dad and taken him to an ICE detention center in Aurora, Colorado. Kamiyar Samimi was a lawful permanent resident, but back in 2005, he pleaded guilty to possessing less than a gram of cocaine and was sentenced to community service. Twelve years later, ICE decided that conviction meant they could deport Kamiyar. His family was worried, but thought it was just a paperwork issue. Then two weeks later, an ICE officer dropped off a business card at Netta's work and said to call. The officer picked up the phone and said... We don't know that if anyone's been in touch with you, but we want you to know that your father passed away over the weekend. ICE had waited two days before contacting the family. The officer said Kamiyar died of cardiac arrest, and it fell to Netta to break the news to her mom. I can still hear my mom scream on the phone when I told her. It's just like always under my skin. At first, the private corporation that runs the detention center, Geo Group, said they acted appropriately, but Netta didn't buy it. It just didn't make sense. She went to the ACLU, and they sued. They discovered ICE records showing that when Kamiyar Samimi was brought to the facility, the staff cut him off from methadone cold turkey. It was a basic need for him to live. I mean, he didn't get it, and then he couldn't live. Sweats turned to nausea, turned to vomiting, including vomiting blood clots. He screamed for help. The detention center's doctor never examined him. The staff did use a protocol for a patient going through withdrawal, but for alcohol, not opioids. On the day he died, a nurse looked at him and said, he's dying, and still waited hours before calling 911. By the time paramedics arrived, Kamiyar Samimi had already stopped breathing. Geo Group settled Netta's lawsuit confidentially. They did not admit wrongdoing. Did you ever get an apology from ICE? No. No, absolutely not. But inside the government, in a confidential report, a medical expert investigating civil rights complaints found a series of astonishing failures in this case. NPR spent more than three years seeking a copy of this report and others from investigators examining ICE detention for the Department of Homeland Security across the country. The government, under both Trump and Biden, fought their release. 
so we sued. Eventually, a federal judge found that the government violated the Freedom of Information Act and ordered them to send us the documents. These documents are written by experts in medicine, mental health care, and use of force, and they write unflinchingly. It was actually this report that first led me to call Netta. I assume you've never seen this, probably. I don't think that I have. The report says, quote, The complete lack of medical leadership, supervision, and care that this detainee was exposed to is simply astonishing and stands out as one of the most egregious failures to provide optimal care in my experience. It truly appears that this system failed at every aspect of care possible. It says it right here. At every step of the way, my dad was failed. This was not the only problem this inspector found at the Aurora Ice Processing Center. In another case, the inspector found that a detainee was diagnosed with HIV but was never told. The inspector wrote that these problems could force a normal health system to close. But this facility is still open and holds around 700 immigrants in detention. And the problems there are not unique. The 1,600 pages of government inspection reports we obtained date from 2017 to 2019 and cover more than two dozen different ICE detention facilities across 16 states. They found grimy medical instruments, a cockroach on a medical exam table, negligent mental health care, inappropriate strip searches, and pepper spraying of mentally ill detainees, and racist abuse. These reports are incredibly damning. Eunice Cho is with the ACLU, and she has spent years visiting clients in ICE detention and seeing conditions firsthand. These facilities lock up asylum seekers, unauthorized immigrants, as well as permanent residents the government deems deportable. Legally, ICE detention is not like prison. It cannot serve as punishment. The goal is to make sure immigrants show up for their court dates. But Cho says the reports NPR obtained show how punishing the conditions are. They really show how the government's own inspectors can see the abuses and the level of abuses that are happening in ICE detention. Do you think the problems identified in these inspection reports, are they outliers? Unfortunately, this is not an outlier. I think this is the tip of the iceberg. And if anything, conditions have probably gotten worse. A White House spokesperson noted that these reports relate to conditions in the prior administration. But immigration attorneys told me that the COVID-19 pandemic helped make those conditions worse. I talked with several immigrants who have been locked up at different facilities. One man told me he was denied his heart medication by jail staff and suffered a heart attack. A woman told me how she was separated from her family, taken off her meds for bipolar disorder, and she said detention was hell on earth, and she has PTSD. Under Biden, 11 people have died in ICE detention so far, including one at the same facility where Kamiar Samimi died. What is that? Just the emergency? Last October, staff at the Aurora Ice Processing Center called 911. We obtained the audio, and it reveals confusion, gaps in communication, and wasted time with someone's life on the line. Can you give me the address again one more time? It's not populating correctly. Uh, 11901. One second. First, the detention officer gets the facility's address, where he worked, wrong. It takes more than a full minute to confirm the location. And then the detention officer does not know the patient's medical issue. So we don't know what this person's symptoms are at all, is that correct? No, I don't know. I'm in control, so I can't read Okay. They just had to call an ambulance? Yes. Experts in emergency medicine told me that information is critical for paramedics to effectively respond. On the call, the officer also can't answer other basic questions, like the patient's age. Can we guess about how old this person is? This is the officer places 911 on hold takes more than a minute and a half before he says, 
He said late 20s. That was wrong. Melvin Ariel Calero Mendoza was 39 years old and from Nicaragua. ICE records say he had been complaining of pain and swelling in his leg for weeks before this emergency. When paramedics arrived, he was taken to a hospital and pronounced dead. A later autopsy revealed he died of a pulmonary embolism. It's unclear if delays on the 911 call contributed to his death, but his family's lawyer told me the depth of indifference displayed on the call was shocking at a moment where every second counts. Geo Group sent us a statement offering their condolences to Calero Mendoza's family, as well as Kamiar Samimi's. They said they strive to treat detainees with dignity and respect, though they could not comment on specific cases. Regardless, Eunice Cho of the ACLU says that the government is ultimately responsible for what happens in ICE detention. What is in these reports really should be a wake-up call for everyone, especially the Biden administration. When Joe Biden ran for president, and early in his administration, he promised to end contracts with the private companies that operate most of the ICE detention centers. Private detention centers, they should not exist. A spokesperson for the Department of Homeland Security noted that the administration has closed a few of the most notorious facilities, and some local jails separately ended their contracts with ICE, but Biden has not kept that campaign promise. More than 90% of immigrant detainees are currently in private facilities. And overall, there are about 30,000 people in ICE detention, around twice as many as when Biden took office. For weeks, we asked both ICE and the White House for an interview to ask about their policies. They declined. So NPR's Asma Khalid asked White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about the Biden campaign promise at a press briefing. Uh, you know, I think the president is still committed to what he laid out during his uh, campaign. Just don't have anything here to share beyond that, beyond his commitment uh, that he is uh, certainly going to continue to stay focused on. But I just don't The White House also sent us a statement saying they are committed to moving away from for-profit ICE detention and noted that they have increased the use of alternatives to detention, like GPS monitoring. The statement from ICE said that they take their commitment to promoting safe, secure, humane environments for those in their custody very seriously. Meanwhile, critics of Biden's border policy, mostly Republicans, argue the president has been too lenient and believe more people should be sent to ICE detention. Netta Samimi Gomez has been watching this debate play out, and the reports of another death at the same facility where her dad died hit her hard. More than anything, I just don't want anybody else to deal with what I've been dealing with for the last five years. Nobody should have to feel this way. Now she says what worries her most is forgetting the sound of her father's voice. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A new state law in Texas goes into effect soon that bans workers in outdoor job sites from guaranteed water breaks. Now some cities and workers there are pushing back. That story's coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. Stocks slid for a second day today. The Dow dropped just about a half percent. S&P fell about three quarters of a percent. And the Nasdaq was down more than one and a tenth percent. Quincy Bay's Twin Rivers Technology is fighting back against a lawsuit from the Conservation Law Foundation. The suit claims the company is polluting the Weymouth Four River and Town River Bay and emitting air pollutants. Twin Rivers says the allegations are not accurate. They will oppose them in court. The company says it is closely guided by regulators. The forecast is coming up. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? to this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. 
71 degrees under gray skies now. The damp day should lead to a damp night tonight with drizzle off and on. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, gray once again. Highs about 77. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. So far in Maui, more than 100 people are reported dead, and many hundreds are still unaccounted for after the fires. It's going to be a long time before we know the totality of what was lost in Lahaina, but we do know, as NPR's Janaki Meta reports, that priceless connections to the island's ancient past are now lost. The Na'akaine O'Maui Cultural and Research Center was home to the vestiges of ancient Hawaii before European colonization. Old documents, maps, genealogy, books that were actually signed by our kings. Our culture center was the hub for a lot of our native Hawaiian people longing for the past. To Kiamoku Kapu, the center meant even more than the rare, tangible treasures of his ancestry. It was also a place of gathering for his community. It was a place of worship, a place of traditional cultural protocols. It was on the main thoroughfare in Lahaina, which was once the capital of the ancient Hawaiian kingdom. Kapu was the center's steward. I'm the curator, uh, president, the janitor, Literally everything. I'm the Two days after the fire, Kapu returned to the rubble to see what was left of Lahaina Town. Oh, man. All my neighbors, gone. Our churches, apartment building that flourished with generations of families, gone. He went to the site of the cultural center with hopes of recovering some artifacts, but he found very little. Carving images made out of stone, you know, that made it, one of them. And stones that was given to me personally by different chiefs from the South Pacific, from New Zealand, from Tahiti, from Samoa. So a great loss. Some of the rare books and documents preserved at the center weren't just history. They were instructive materials for indigenous people fighting for ownership of the land and water that belonged to their ancestors. Kapu himself was involved in litigation that ended up at the state Supreme Court and won him the rights to hold on to the land that his family has owned since the days of the Hawaiian Kingdom. He brought that knowledge to other community members at the cultural center. That was a great advantage to use the center to bring families in and teach them what I've done yeah, in order to help them get their lands back. And it's been working. All those documents are gone. Kapu points his finger to his right temple. All I have is what I have in here. I just cried like we got erased. He tells me he hasn't had the time to process the loss. He's already been through three other fires on Maui before this one. I cannot sleep. Wake up nightmares. 
wake up thinking that everything is fine, only to wake up. It's not, but I guess that's the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, because I gotta stay busy. <laughs> what he's doing is working with Maui's emergency management agency, running one of the distribution centers in Lahaina with several members of his family. Okay, yeah, we get enough quality for quality getting food, supplies, and water to those affected by the fire. Kapu says indigenous people bring a unique understanding to this work. We know exactly what the general community is feeling now because we know about trauma, we know about being displaced. Kapu is also serving as a liaison between the local government and indigenous community. He's on an advisory council to the mayor as a county navigates the response to this fire. There's a lot of distrust right now. And our responsibility as advisories in the community is to alleviate that distrust. Because if we don't, it's going to be chaotic. He plans to continue working with the government as the recovery and rebuilding process continues. He's wary of the potential for payouts for property that was lost and is encouraging community members to try and hold on to their land. What is it going to take to rebuild the capital of the kingdom once again? What is it going to take? This is a legacy we're talking about. What is the payoff for losing that? Just days after the fire, Kapu is trying to hold on to hope that Lahaina will be rebuilt with respect to its rich Hawaiian history. I think it can be done right, but we just got to get our leaders to the table. Until then, Kapu says he will keep a watchful eye over the land beneath the cultural center's remains, the land of historic Lahaina town, the land of his ancestors. In Maui, I'm Janaki Mehta, NPR News. Australians have been cheering so hard for their women's soccer team, the Matildas, or the Tillies as they're nicknamed, that there is even a name for going horse during the Women's World Cup. It's called Tilly Voice. The rise of the Matildas popularity has been called a feminist cultural reckoning in Australia, where women's sports had long been sidelined in broadcast media. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from the West Australian port city of Fremantle. At the neighborhood pub called the local, men and women get into the mood. Many are decked in Australia's sporting colours, green and gold. It's on beanies, scarves, t-shirts. A table of women count down for the semi-finals to begin. Australia's Matildas versus England's Lionesses. The crowd goes wild as Australia's top scorer, Sam Kerr, charges, striking the ball into the goal. The crowd's affection is sincere. It's also new. The Matildas have only been a household name since the World Cup began nearly four weeks ago as they churn through opponents. Australians packed pubs, stadiums, viewing venues. They broke television records. But in the semi-finals, the English were ahead. The crowd tried to flag sinking spirits with a rendition of Waltzing Matilda, the unofficial anthem, and the team's namesake. No use. The English team, the Lionesses, won the game. Regardless, many were just pleased so many came to cheer on women playing soccer, like Cassie Gunthorpe. She's 29. 
just amazing. It's lovely to watch so many people turn out for a women's football match. That could be the Matildas' lasting impact. People turning up. Megan Morris is a sports journalist. She says media executives long neglected women's sports because they didn't think people would watch it. This tournament's just come along and blown a lot of those old assumptions out of the water and shown just how much people do want to watch women's sport when it's visible, when they know about it. Back in the pub, one young man shakes his head as reality sinks in. The Matildas are out. The grand final will be England versus Spain on Sunday. The young man turns to his friend and says, fine, I'm cheering on Spain then. As if it was the most normal thing in the world and not a cultural shift that began only four weeks ago. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Fremantle. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up on All Things Considered, new houses across the country are selling quickly despite high mortgage rates. The home building boom coming up in about 15 minutes. WBUR wants to hear from you. Take our listener survey and be honest. How are we doing? What kind of thing do you want to hear more of or less of? Talk to us. Go to WBUR.org survey and thanks. Red Sox take on the Nationals tonight in Washington, D.C. It's the second of a three-game series. The Sox won the opener last night. James Paxton gets the start for the Sox tonight. He'll face Mackenzie Gore for the Nats. This is 90.9 WBUR, 71 degrees under gray skies in Boston. It's 4.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Visit mazes and brain games and challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at MOS.org. The U.S. is investing tens of billions of dollars in Ukraine's fight against Russia. From weapons to humanitarian aid, how does Washington keep track? You can't spend that much money without there being waste, fraud, and abuse. It's just as simple as that. We ask a government watchdog for lessons learned from another war front in Afghanistan. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Hawaii, hundreds of FEMA workers are on the ground in Maui assisting in the response following last week's devastating wildfires. 106 people are confirmed dead so far, but only a handful have been identified. That's a reflection of the painstaking process of recovering remains from mostly ash. The president and first lady plan to travel to Maui early next week. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre speaking to reporters today. The president and the first lady will be traveling to Hawaii on Monday to meet with first responders, survivors, as well as federal, state, and local officials. Since the onset of the horrific fires in Maui, dozens of federal departments and agencies have been working with state and local partners on the ground to assess ongoing needs and providing resources and personnel to support uh, response on the ground. President Biden says he wants to go to Hawaii to ensure the residents of the state are getting what they need. In Puerto Rico, students headed back to school today as Katha Cardoza reports counselors say natural disasters have taken a toll, a heavy toll, on students' mental health. In 2017, there was Hurricane Maria, beginning 2019, a series of earthquakes. In 2020, COVID. 
Schools had just about reopened when in 2022, Hurricane Fiona struck. Jadira Sanchez has been a school psychologist for more than two decades. In the island with one thing after the other, it's, it's a trauma. We haven't had time to recover. The U.S. Department of Education has signed off on almost $6 billion for the island school system over the past two years. If we lose hope, we don't move this island forward. Some of the federal money has been used to hire hundreds of health professionals, as well as pay for evaluations and therapy. For NPR News, I'm Kavita Cardoza in Salinas, Puerto Rico. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston school officials said they have a fully staffed team of bus drivers for the first time since the pandemic began. As Emily Piper Valio reports, the district hopes this will mean more students get to school on time. Roughly 600 yellow school buses carrying 20,000 Boston public school students will hit city streets starting next month. Last year's bus driver shortage and Orange Line shutdown kept some kids from getting to class on time. But district leaders said today there are now over 700 bus drivers with another 35 in training. Superintendent Mary Skipper said she hopes that will lead to fewer delays. We're very excited to be fully staffed on the bus driver side um, and to have additional bus drivers in training. That helps to ensure that every bus we have gets out onto the road and that ensures that there's a better on-time performance. Skipper also said adjustments to bus routes could be made. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper Valillo. Proponents of two ballot questions that aim to end the MCAS exam high school graduation requirement joining forces. They hope to replace the testing requirement with a local certification academic achievement. The coalition includes the parents group and members of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. They want to get the question on the 2024 state ballot. State Senate President Karen Spilka calls the damage from last week's flooding in the Merrimack Valley devastating. She was among several lawmakers today who toured the area businesses damaged by torrential rains. She said she was awed by the damage sustained by one particular restaurant in North Andover. The impact is total devastation. I mean, their inventory is gone. Some of it floated away, literally. The business needs to be shut down. Some of the flooding was so intense that it just blew right through windows that were towards the ground. Spilka says they'll be working with both state and federal government officials to see what options might be available. She thinks the damage will meet the threshold to trigger federal help. A Massachusetts woman has drowned in Lincoln, New Hampshire, while trying to rescue her son. She's been identified by Everett Mayor Carlo DeMaria as 44-year-old Melissa Bagley of Lynn. She's the wife of an Everett police officer. New Hampshire Fish and Game officials say she and her family were at Franconia Falls yesterday when her son fell in the water and became trapped by the circulating current. Bagley jumped in to save her son but became overwhelmed. Efforts to revive her were not successful. Another son who jumped in the water to also help became trapped and was saved by his father, Officer Sean Bagley. If you live in Boston and have ideas on how to improve public transportation, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she wants to hear from you. She put out a call today on social media for people to nominate themselves or others to represent the city on the MBTA's board of directors. The state's 2024 budget included the addition of a city representative on the board. Nominations are due September 5th. In the forecast pretty damp today. We'll be damp again tonight. In fact, drizzle off and on. Temperatures in the mid-60s overnight. And then for tomorrow, overcast once again. Light rain could make it to about 77 degrees, even milder on Friday. It's 436. 
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden is celebrating a big anniversary today. A year ago, Democrats in Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. It accounts for billions of dollars in spending on climate goals and it cuts prices for prescription drugs. Now, polling shows that voters like the programs, but they aren't giving President Biden any credit for them. NPR's Deepa Shivaram joins us now to talk about this disconnect. Hi, Deepa. Hey there. Okay, so I know that you've been on the road lately talking to voters in Las Vegas. So just sort of broadly speaking, I'm curious, what did they tell you about how they're feeling towards President Biden, the economy? Give us a sense. Yeah, a lot of what I heard from people in Las Vegas is the same thing of what I heard last November when I was there covering the midterm elections. Uh People are worried about the cost of living. They're worried about how much things cost, how much they have to spend just to get by. I spoke with a woman named Gabby Gama, and she told me she has a long list of things that she's concerned about right now. The rent is really high. Um, Groceries and just pretty much everything, gas, everything that we use in the daily. It's just very pricey. And Gabby told me she's not sure who she's going to vote for in 2024, but she did say she voted for Biden last time. And she regrets it because of how she feels the economy has fared since he's been in office. It just seemed like it, it went that way to me, you know, visually. It just seemed like as soon as he took over, it was just kind of like, whoop. And when she said that, she took her hand and did like a downhill kind of motion with it. Eric Jorgensen is another voter I spoke with, and he's so far supporting former President Donald Trump. For me, it's not about if you're a Democrat or a Republican. It's what's best for my pocketbook. In the end of the day, I think the economy was doing much better during his time. His time, meaning Trump's time, I imagine. Well, I mean, this is all really interesting because the economy, it actually seems to be improving, right? Like, for one thing, inflation is down substantially from where it was a year ago. So why aren't people giving Biden credit for that? Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, when you look at different aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is what Biden is celebrating today, like you (laughs) mentioned, things like capping the cost of insulin, for example, that's something that's very tangible and very popular. People are supportive of this agenda, but they're not connecting it with this administration because polling shows that people don't approve of how the president is handling the economy. And Biden has said repeatedly there's a lot more work to do. He said today at the White House he's not going to take a victory lap. But some places in the country, we have to keep in mind, are harder hit than others. Las Vegas was a city that was just decimated by the pandemic. The unemployment rate in Nevada is the highest in the country right now. So people there might not be seeing as much of this progress that Biden keeps talking about. And that's a problem for him because Nevada is one of a handful of swing states where the election will ultimately be determined. I talked to Rakeen Maboud. She's an economist with the Groundwork Collaborative, which is a left-leaning economic policy group. And she says that Biden should highlight that people are still really struggling, particularly people from marginalized groups. There's a lot more work to do. And it's okay to say that because unless we acknowledge that people are in pain and they are continuing to struggle, 
I, you know, I don't think that that message will get heard. Okay, well, then how will that message get heard? Like, what are the next moves for Biden to try to close this gap and connect with voters when it comes to the economy? Well, the White House has pointed out that it'll take time for these investments to make a difference in people's daily lives. And so Biden and other administration officials have been traveling around the country trying to sell this message week after week. (laughs) And when it comes to Nevada specifically, this is a state that Biden narrowly won in 2020. And Democrats held on to most of their seats there in the midterm elections. But it was really close. So the Biden campaign plans to put more focus there. And just one example of that, this week in Las Vegas, there are new ads out for Biden, both in English and Spanish. And they're targeting black and brown voters, trying to talk about how the Inflation Reduction Act is lowering costs for Americans. That is NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Thank you, Deepa. In Texas, water breaks for outdoor workers will no longer be mandatory under a new law that takes effect soon. It's a big safety issue for workers everywhere in this era of climate change, but especially in a state like Texas, which has seen record-setting heat this summer. Now, some in the Lone Star State are pushing the Biden administration to adopt federal standards to try to protect employees from heat-related illness. Andrew Weber from member station KUT in Austin reports. Chances are if you go anywhere around downtown Austin right now and point to a building, James Rusa probably had a hand in building it. We do build the skyline, so, I mean, I've done so many. I can't even remember them all anymore, you know? I met the veteran steelworker on a job site on the last day of the hottest July on record in Austin's history, at least since they started keeping records back in 1898. This summer, he's been building a new office tower downtown. Rusa, like any Texan, will tell you, yes, Texas has been pretty bad this summer. So he says outdoor crews like his have to have each other's backs. Because you might just be going, 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 and your partner's like, man, you know what? You stopped sweating, you're not sweating anymore, and it's over 100 degrees, you should be sweating. I think you need to sit down. So you got to look out for each other. If you're working on a big construction site like this one in downtown Austin, right now, ground temperatures are above 120 degrees at least. And most workers here are putting in 10 to 12 hour days, days that are just getting hotter and hotter. Rusa, a foreman, says hydrating is a matter of safety and survival. I don't care what the company says. My guy looks like he needs a break. He's getting a break. But that practice, just making sure workers get water breaks, is a city law in Austin and Dallas, too. But a new statewide law that goes into effect in September could supersede those local rules. The GOP-controlled Texas legislature passed that law earlier this year. Republican State Senator Brandon Creighton carried the bill in the Texas Senate. He argued having a rule requiring rest breaks for outdoor workers in one city and not another hurts businesses. For many sessions, I've pursued legislation that addressed specific instances where activist cities were enacting job-killing ordinances. U.S. Congressman Greg Kassar disagrees. Before running for Congress, he helped pass that local law requiring water breaks for outdoor workers, at least one 10-minute break every four hours. The Austin Democrat says the city law needs to exist because there are no federal standards to help prevent heat stroke or heat-related illness for outdoor workers. A lot of folks have asked me, how could it be that there aren't actual rules and laws guaranteeing people the right to come off of a scaffold or get out of the sun and get a drink of water. The tough truth is that those rules don't exist. The risks for people working outside are only increasing with the onslaught of climate change, says Texas state climatologist John Nielsen Gammon. Both because of the rising temperatures and the rising amount of moisture in the atmosphere, heat stress is expected to become an increasing danger for outdoor workers. 
Texas's record-breaking heat this summer has led to at least a dozen deaths, but experts say that number is likely higher. In Austin, the majority of calls this summer to the city's paramedics have been for outdoor workers suffering heat exhaustion. So Congressman Kassar is trying to establish a federal standard, one that would supersede Texas's law. That would require a rule change by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the agency in charge of enforcing federal labor standards. But OSHA has failed to do that for more than a decade. That's just totally unacceptable. And so I think we have to fast track it. And fast tracking for the federal government means a year. Kassar held a thirst strike on the Capitol steps last month, which pushed the Biden administration to start that fast-tracking process. Meantime, Houston and San Antonio have sued the state over the water break law to block it. And while there likely won't be any protections for construction workers this time next year, the construction foreman, Rusa, says they'll keep working outdoors and hydrating as Austin's skyline keeps growing. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Weber in Austin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There is something surprising happening with the nation's home builders. They are having a busy summer. Mortgage rates are close to the highest they've been in two decades, which would ordinarily be a drag on housing. But builders are hustling to hire new workers to pour foundations and frame new walls. Newly built houses are in high demand, thanks in part to a shortage of existing homes on the market. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hey, Scott. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, builders are selling a lot of houses, even though mortgage rates are sky high. Please explain this to me. Yeah, it is a little counterintuitive. The average mortgage rates climb to around 7%, but home builders are not slowing down. In fact, they've added about 21,000 workers over the last three months. And new numbers out from the Commerce Department this morning showed builders broke ground on almost 10% more single-family houses in July than they did in the same month a year ago. Robert Dietz, who's chief economist for the National Association of Home Builders, says new homes have been kind of an oasis in the current market. That's because people who already own homes are kind of trapped by these rising loan rates. And so the supply of resale houses has really dried up. If you're a homeowner who's got a 2 or 3% mortgage, you're not in a hurry to put your home up for sale to purchase a new one because that would require a higher mortgage interest rate. So resale inventory is about half of what it should be. That is supporting demand for new construction. Just to give you an idea of how this is seesawed, existing home sales in June were down about 19% from a year ago, but new home sales were up almost 24%. Huh, interesting. Okay, so Scott, how do the prices of new homes and existing homes compare? Right now, they're very similar. The average price of a new home sold in June was about $415,000. That's only about $5,000 more than the average resale house. That's a much smaller gap than we would typically see. Uh, About 25% of new home builders have actually been cutting their prices, and they have gotten some help from lumber, which has gotten a lot cheaper over the last couple years. Other building materials have also come down a little bit in price. But the big thing is builders are actually downsizing their floor plans a little bit. Uh, That's a reversal from what we saw early in the pandemic when people were spending all day at home and clamoring for more space. Uh, Jessica Hansen, who's a vice president at the big home builder DR Horton, says buyers still want space, but what they really want is a monthly payment they can swing. They continue to want as much square footage as they can get, but they're constrained by what they can afford, which is why we continue to start 
more and more of our smaller floor plans. So we would expect just continued very gradual moves down in our average square footage today. Hansen says the average house her company is building today is about 2% smaller than it was a year ago. I mean, Scott, I got to be honest, those average sales prices you were talking about, they still sound pretty high to me. What does this mean for a person who's trying to buy their first home? Yeah, it's a big lift. The monthly payment on an average home today is about $800 higher than it would have been a couple of years ago when mortgage rates were closer to 3%. Now, certainly lower interest rates would help, but Dietz, the home builders economist, says until we find a way to build smaller, denser, more affordable houses, a lot of people are going to be priced out. This is a very frustrating market for the, the first-time home buyer that can't find resale inventory, who's increasingly looking at new construction, and of course dealing with high interest rates. If you don't have access to the, the bank of mom and dad to get that down payment, it is a very challenging market. Now, there is some good news on the horizon for renters. There's about a million apartments under construction right now, and when those become available, that should put some downward pressure on rents. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks, as always. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about two minutes on WBUR, a legend in avant-garde music is out with a collaborative album, John Kill's latest, just ahead. And in about 15 minutes, part of West Maui reopens to the public after the wildfires left the area scorched. Red Sox play the middle game of their series with the Nationals in Washington, D.C. tonight. 7.05 start time with James Paxton pitching for the Sox. Mackenzie Gore for the Nats. Coming to City Space Friday, August 25th, the Mortified Podcast, featuring true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who experienced it. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 449. Former President Donald Trump faces his fourth indictment in four months, this time for trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. It's much bigger than Watergate. Trump wanted to stay in office. He wanted to use Georgia as part of that plan. And so this is very different and much more troubling. I'm Deborah Becker. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. In March 2020, John Cale was in Brazil playing festival shows with his band. That's them on March 14th in Sao Paulo. Of course, COVID lockdowns were sweeping across the world. So Cale and the band cut the tour short and caught one of the last flights back to the States. Kale threw himself into his next project, recording a new album. My studio was in a shambles because it was about to get remodeled. And nearly every piece of gear I owned was locked away in a pile of rubble. So I rummaged through my house and find bits and bobs here and there. And I found a new appreciation for some beat-up old analog keyboards alongside a few things that I'd never played before. Kale is no stranger to making music in unconventional ways. In the early 60s, he left Wales and moved to New York City, where he fell into a blossoming experimental music scene. A few years later, he co-founded The Velvet Underground with Lou Reed. And ever since, he's been a stalwart of avant-garde music. But as he put this new album together, he realized he needed more than just different instrumentation to make it work. When I came back from Brazil, the album was written already. And 
I was trying to figure out who could add more intrigue into the album. So he called up some friends like the singer Wiseblood and bands like Sylvan Esso and Animal Collective. The result is a highly collaborative record called Mercy, which is out now. So what stuck out about some of these collaborators that made you want to work with them? Most of the artists that joined me on on the tracks, they had their own atmosphere to them. And I didn't try and push them in any direction. I just let them be and really inhale the spirit that they brought to the song. The emotion of the song really was joined by their performance. Wise Blood has a very deep and emotional voice. She just warms the track, and Animal Collective really has this multi-voice personality. So I, um, I laughed a lot when, when, we, when we did Everlasting Days. What made you laugh? Just the quality of, of the voices that were there and how they, they sometimes abandoned what the uh, traditional approach to the melody would be. It was really part of the process of many different voices coming to terms with many different ideas in the song. I'd like to ask you about another one of the collaborations on this album, and that is the song that you did with the band Sylvan Esso. The song is called Time Stands Still, and I'm hoping you can just bring us into the studio and into your process. How did that one come together? I'd always enjoyed Sylvanessa's style of harmonizing, and I was hoping that a paths might cross, but as I was putting the finishing touches on this song, I got a call saying Amelia and Nick were in LA and could would love to drop by and say hello. And it was then I thought that a perfect time to see if they'd want to guest on the track that I was working on. I guess that's the perfect example of serendipity, but it was a natural fit, and I couldn't be happier with the results. I talked with Nick Sanborn and Amelia Meath of Sylvan Esso last year, and one of the things that I remember from their conversation that they both told me is that when they're creating music, they're constantly trying to surprise one another with the work that they create in separate, and that with their latest record, one of their goals was to really discard all of the rules, everything they knew about creating music, and to really release themselves from conventions. And I wonder if any of that showed up for you in the collaboration that you had with them. Well, I, I was I was lucky to have as much time as I did with, with, with them. And I don't pay attention to, to convention and, and because I, I depend so much on improvisation, I don't stand listening to things for very long. I don't repeat choruses. I don't, the idea of the song doesn't depend on choruses that repeat themselves. And I, I also, I, I'm, I'm, I'm short-tempered, unfortunately. <laughs> and, I, and I don't, I really want to have as many new ideas as I possibly can in the song. This song is one of a couple different places on this album where 
I hear some trap or hip-hop influence coming through, both in the drums and the rhythm. Was that deliberate? Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, I sort of fell in love with hip-hop. It has so many lively approaches to songwriting. Hip-hop is the avant-garde of today. How so? They are unconventional approaches to emotions and creativity. They have no respect for solos and for all the other usual trappings that you have in, in songwriting. You've said that you always try to, quote, create music beyond the premise set before. Do you find that hard to keep doing after all of these years of creating? And do you feel like you've done that with this album? Yes to the last question, but I realized a long time ago that you've got, you've got improvisation is really you, your way of, if you start a song with just any kind of melody or rhythm that, that you, you have, you don't just stop because you haven't got a solution yet. You're better off working at it and helping it advance its, its ideas, whatever they are, and your, your audience is then your friend. have been working on this album for some time. Your career has spanned years. I just want to end by asking you, what's next for you? Well, yeah, it took two and a half years to do. So I'm now going out on the, on the road and, and I, I don't want to summarize what I've, what I've just done. I mean, I have this uncanny kind of idea that if you, if you go and, and end up in a corner that you've feel uncomfortable in, something will happen and you will come up with a solution. So that's kind of my mantra. That's John Cale. His new album, Mercy, is out now. John, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. In the forecast on the bright side, looks as if we're going to have a beautiful weekend ahead. Until then, not so good. More clouds and drizzle tonight, down around the mid-60s. Tomorrow should stay overcast with fog and more drizzle. Could creep to the mid-70s tomorrow. Then for Friday, a bit of stormy weather possible. Should be warmer, though. Could hit the mid-80s. 
WBR wants to hear from you. Take our listener survey and be honest. Tell us how we're doing. What kind of thing do you want to hear more of or less of? Talk to us by going to wbur.org slash survey. 71 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.59. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A big step toward getting more help to parts of West Maui devastated by wildfire. Today, a road that has been shut down has reopened. There was already a long line of cars traveling the road early this morning. Meanwhile, recovery teams are still at work. It's Wednesday, August 16th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, a three-judge panel on the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals found that the Food and Drug Administration failed to take into account safety concerns when it made the abortion pill more accessible. The reading and math scores of school children in Puerto Rico is far behind those of kids in the mainland U.S., and educational leaders are concerned. We have to change what we're doing. What we're doing is not good enough for the students of Puerto Rico. More on why educational outcomes on the island are so poor. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, want to take their case against former President Trump and 18 other defendants to trial in March. The defendants are accused of conspiring to subvert the 2020 election result. Sam Greenglass of member station WABE in Atlanta reports on the motion that was filed with the court today. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's proposed scheduling order would have arraignments take place the week of September 5th. She's asking for a trial to begin six months later, the week before Georgia's 2024 GOP presidential primary. Fulton Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee will make the final decision. He'll have to schedule around multiple defendants and proceedings in Trump's three other criminal cases. Other factors may slow down the case, like protracted jury selection and efforts by Trump and others to move the case to federal court. Defendants have until next Friday to voluntarily surrender and will be booked at the Fulton County Jail. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. Searchers on Maui are using cadaver dogs to search for victims of the country's deadliest wildfire in more than 100 years. At least 106 people are confirmed dead, and officials say more bodies will likely be found. Federal Forest Service officials in Northern California say a wildfire burning in the Klamath National Forest has now grown to four square miles. It's one of at least 20 fires burning in the area, and that worries Klamath Forest Supervisor Rachel Smith. I'm really concerned. Uh, We have 19 confirmed fires on the ground right now, um, and we have a lot of smokes that we have not put eyes on. So these are smokes that our our lookouts have detected, or we have um, cameras that have detected them, but we have not been able to get to them yet simply because there's so many fires across the forest. The fires were touched off by lightning and fanned by gusty winds. Several rural areas are under evacuation orders. More than three years after armed protesters carrying rifles took part in demonstrations at the Michigan State Capitol, the group that oversees the building has passed a weapons ban. The Michigan Public Radio Network's Colin Jackson has more. The Michigan State Capitol Commission's plan stops the public from bringing firearms and other dangerous items into the building. Commissioner Tim Bolin says he's been trying to make the Capitol 
capital more secure for decades. It's been tough because uh, being open uh, to the public is something that we want to maintain at all times as well. It wasn't until newer technology that we found that we could do something a little more um, progressive, if you will. The commission had previously banned the open carry of firearms, still allowing licensed concealed carry. Under the new plan, only a few select groups like licensed lawmakers and on-duty law enforcement will still be able to take their guns inside. For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson in Lansing. In Wall Street, the Dow closed down 180 points today. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party and more than 20 state GOP committee members are suing the party's new leader. The Boston Globe reports they're accusing Amy Carnevale of wrongly dropping a lawsuit against its treasurer. Former Mass GOP Chair Jim Lyons sued Treasurer Patrick Crowley for freezing the organization's bank account. Carnevale dropped that suit in June. Lyons and the GOP members are hoping a judge can bring it back. Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara is looking to dismiss the criminal driving charges against her related to a June car crash where she struck a house in Jamaica Plain. As WBRS Walter Wuthman reports, Lara appeared in Boston Municipal Court earlier today. Lara faces a total of nine charges, including driving with a suspended license and recklessly permitting bodily injury to a child. Her defense attorney is moving to dismiss all of them, arguing that Lara was not properly given a copy of the citation, a violation of state law. Prosecutors say their delay was justified because they needed more time to investigate the crash. A Boston police officer later determined Lara was driving at least 53 miles per hour on a residential street before swerving and hitting a house. The two sides are next due in court in October. That's after the city's preliminary election, where Lara faces two challengers for her council seat. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Attorney General Andrea Campbell is urging the federal government to increase the number of work permits for immigrants. She's leading a coalition of 19 state attorneys general who have sent a letter to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. The letter says the work authorizations would help states meet workforce demands while conserving safety net resources. Many migrants legally in the state have waited for 10 months or more for work permits due to processing delays. And the Franklin Park Zoo needs help naming one of its newest and biggest babies. The six-foot-tall, 184-pound male Maasai giraffe was born last month. Visitors can now see the baby and his mother in their enclosure. You can also help name the giraffe through an online auction that opened today and runs through the 27th of the month. All auction proceeds will go directly to animal care. 71 degrees now. Clouds in a big way today, tomorrow, maybe even Friday. Tonight's lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow's high should reach the mid-70s, and then Friday could make it to the mid-80s, often on rain throughout the stretch. Finally, we may see the sun again over the weekend. 71 degrees in Boston at 507. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. In Hawaii, access into Lahaina, the historic town that was leveled by a devastating fire last week in Maui, has been a challenge since the fire broke out a week ago. But today, 
there is a glimmer of progress. Hawaii Governor Josh Green announced the main road into the community would open up this morning to the public for the first time. Our team in West Maui is there now. NPR's Gabriel Spitzer joins me from Lahaina. Hi, Gabe. Hi, Juana. Nice to talk to you. You too. So, Gabe, tell us where you are right now. Paint me a picture of what you're seeing and hearing. Sure. So we're in an aid center, which is uh, located in a park, like a beachside park, a few miles north of the burn zone. And basically, there are a bunch of tables here that are laden with food and water, diapers, clothing. There's a Starlink truck here that's providing Internet service. And, and, you know, there's a handful of small kids here helping out by playing shopkeeper, distributing supplies, generally keeping up morale. And uh, there's a, a medical tent here that's been quite busy. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that? What are you hearing from people at that medical station and distribution center where you're at? What are they telling you? Sure. Well, the volunteers here are, are getting folks medications, and then there's you know triaging the more serious issues. Uh, we talked to Don Decker, who's been the, the lead coordinator at this distribution center, and he says he's also a former EMT and firefighter, and he explained the kind of issues that people have been coming in with needing care. We're seeing a lot of burn victims. We're seeing a lot of trauma uh, is coming through here, a lot of mental issues. Decker told us that uh, yesterday someone here had a heart attack and was resuscitated mm. with CPR. That person was taken to the hospital. But, uh, yeah, like I said, they've been, they've been quite busy dealing with issues that really run the gamut. I can imagine. I mean, Gabe, I I know you're talking to a lot of people there. I'm wondering, there's a lot of mutual aid going on here for community members who are working to help each other out, to provide care to each other, as you've just been talking about. How are they holding up? Well, it's tough because so many of the people here who are doing the work are also victims themselves. These are people who are reeling from from the disaster and, and having to sort of fill in the gaps of the official response. Um, one of the big health needs right now is, is not just medical care, but culturally competent medical care. It's a big deal in Hawaii where there's such complicated relationships between people and government. And we, we met a woman named Kii Kaho Ohanohano, who uh, is a, a midwife and uh, specializes in prenatal care. She set up this tent here for specifically traditional Hawaiian healing practices. Um, and she told us about how she helped this case of a mother uh, who went into a labor a couple of days ago. Um, so really, you know, the, the, the full range of medical services. But then she also says that, like, having local knowledge has helped to give people comfort in, in this really difficult time here. Um, she talked to uh, a, a mom who, who was hosting all these other um, displaced folks in her house, but was separated from her child, and she had called Kii uh, to ask for a very, very particular request. She just wanted to hear the baby's heartbeat. You know, I mean, she's hosting all these houseless people. They have all these families, and it hasn't stopped, and it's just so much trauma. It's so hard, you know, for everybody. Um, but, but to hear that heart tone, you know, she's like, oh, my gosh, I can finally sleep tonight. And... and uh, that, ahead, that's, that's sort of the, oh, sure, that's, that's sort of the, hear from, from a lot of folks here, that the connections that they have with their neighbors and the people that they, they know and love are, are, are so important to the healing process. I mean, these stories that you and the team there have been bringing back about the way that the community has really come together have been so powerful. I want to ask you, in the about 30 seconds that we have left, are they getting the support they need from official sources? They really say that, that it's uh, quite uneven. A lot of folks, you know, there's this tension between wanting to centralize and organize the response versus do what's quick and expedient and, uh, and, and local. And so that tension has not 
necessarily eased, unfortunately. Uh, and folks think that they're going to be, you know, probably trying to both do this mutual aid as well as work with official sources, uh, you know, until the job is done. That's NPR's Gabriel Spitzer, along with producer Janaki Mehta in West Maui. Thank you both and looking forward to more reporting. Thank you so much, Juana. There is one school district on the island of Puerto Rico, which makes that district the sixth largest in the nation. And as the academic year begins there this week, consider this. More than one-third of fourth graders in U.S. states are considered proficient or better in math, according to the nation's report card. But in Puerto Rico, that number rounds to zero. Children on the island also have worse outcomes when it comes to graduation rates, and reading scores continue to decline. No state even comes close to this level of educational impoverishment. So, how did we get here? Well, Kavita Cardoza traveled to Puerto Rico to find out. The first graders in Adi Abreu's class listen intently to a story about the flamboyant tree. It's beloved in Puerto Rico for its expansive canopy and fiery red blossoms. Children wiggle, then giggle, as Abrio stomps her feet, flings her arms wide, and imitates a rooster. <laughs> when they see a picture of all the little insects that live in the tree, the children can't contain themselves. When I spoke to her last fall, Abreu had been a teacher for 23 years. She told me she'd only just learned how to be effective, though, when she got help from a nonprofit. Before that, she rarely had professional development, so she didn't know it was important to read aloud, to go over words more than once, or ask students to summarize a story. That changed when she got some training. It's the best thing that could have happened to me as a teacher. The lack of professional development opportunities among teachers on the island is part of the reason why so few students can read. First grade, 11%. Second grade, 6%. Third grade, 1.29%. 1.29, you mean 1%? 1, 1%, yeah. Carlos Rodriguez Silvestre is the executive director of the Flamboyant Foundation in Puerto Rico, the nonprofit that helped Abreu. Children on the island learn in Spanish, so we can't compare those reading scores to American states. But there is a math test that children all over the U.S. take. In the states, a quarter of eighth graders are considered proficient or better. In Puerto Rico, not even one percent are. We have to change what we're doing. What we're doing is not good enough for the students of Puerto Rico. That's Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona speaking in May. His grandparents are from the island. Cardona isn't just talking about test scores. There are other stark gaps. Compared with the mainland, students in Puerto Rico are less likely to graduate high school, go on to college, and eventually earn a bachelor's degree. Some of this is because of limited professional development for teachers, as well as poor pay. But many reasons go beyond the school system. There is an element of racism in the treatment of Puerto Rico. That's true now. It's been true for decades upon decades. John King, whose mother is from the island, is the former Secretary of Education under President Obama. Puerto Rico occupies a nebulous position as an unincorporated territory, meaning its residents are U.S. citizens but lack a presidential vote and representation in Congress. 
As the island continues to wrestle with the fallout of its bankruptcy, King says that's a big problem. You don't have folks who are showing up in Congress every day fighting for resources for the island. And so you see that there isn't the commitment to Puerto Rico and Puerto Rican kids that there should be. Child poverty is widespread at 55%, more than three times higher than on the mainland. And then you add in the huge outflow of population over the last few years. The student population has essentially halved since 2006. Fewer kids means under-enrolled schools, which has led to mass school closures. Teachers were reassigned, children had longer commutes, and buildings were left vacant. Ana Diaz, who teaches third graders, has experienced the plummeting enrollment firsthand. She says she worries a lot, especially since Hurricane Maria hit in 2017. 30 kids are supposed to be able to fit into my classroom, but since Maria, it's been significantly lower. She started the last year with just 14 students, the fewest she's had in more than two decades of teaching. In addition to hurricanes, the island has faced earthquakes, floods and mudslides, all of which have pushed families to move to the mainland. And that has implications for Diaz's job as well. If more students leave, she could be transferred to a different school. And then there's the problem of teacher compensation. The average pay in Puerto Rico was $27,000 in 2018. Teachers in U.S. states average more than twice that. My fellow teachers are extremely more than frustrated. I would have to use a stronger expression than that. Last year, teachers learned they would no longer receive a guaranteed pension and their retirement age was postponed. Those decisions were made by a federally appointed oversight board. I would need a lifetime more to retire, but I'm not going to teach classes into my 70s. Last year, teachers received a temporary $1,000 a month bump, but it's unclear how long that will last. It was possible because of almost $6 billion in federal funds. That money is paying for updates to the district's record systems from paper to electronic, to decentralized school administration and building improvements. All important changes, but it's unclear how or when those changes will trickle down to improve student achievement. For NPR News, I'm Kavita Cardoza in Carolina, Puerto Rico. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the latest story of an unsung hero. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at vrtx.com. 
Stocks slid for a second day today. The Dow dropped about a half percent. S&P fell about three-quarters of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down more than one and a tenth percent. The net worth of health insurance plans in Massachusetts is growing. New data from the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association says as of last December, the net worth of health insurance companies in the state exceeded $6 billion. That's more than a third higher than it was five years ago. The health plan cites stock market gains for the increase. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. Red Sox played the middle game of their series with the Nationals in Washington, D.C. tonight, 7.05 start time. James Paxton pitches for the Sox, Mackenzie Gore for the Nats. Plenty cloudy and drizzly this evening and tonight, settling at about 65 degrees overnight. Shouldn't be much brighter tomorrow than it was today. Cloudy, foggy, light rain, making it to possibly 77 degrees. Same thing for Friday, clouds and rain. The added attraction of thunderstorms could warm to the mid-80s, though. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. There are developments today in a legal case that could affect access to a key abortion medication. A group in Texas sued the FDA over its approval of mifepristone. Today, a panel of judges at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans agreed with some of their arguments. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has been reading the decision and joins us now. Hey, Selena. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so first of all, does this ruling change anything in terms of access now to mifepristone? No, nothing changes because of this ruling. The Supreme Court has already said that the status quo will remain in effect until it decides whether or not to take up the case. So mifepristone, still available. Okay, so no immediate impact. Then what did the federal appeals court decide here? Well, the challengers here are medical groups and individual physicians that oppose abortion, and the panel sided with them. The court was asked to throw out FDA's original approval of mifepristone, which was way back in 2000, Mm -hmm. and the changes that it made to how the medicine is prescribed in 2016 and 2021. So the panel of judges here said 2000 was too long ago. We're not going to go there. But they did accept the argument that the FDA shouldn't have changed the prescribing rules, and they would turn back the clock to 2016. So I called up Greer Donnelly to talk about this. She's a health law professor at the University of Pittsburgh. If this order does go into effect, it would still cause pretty significant changes to the status quo in terms of how pills are accessed in this country. And that includes access to this medication in states where abortion is legal and protected. So if this order stands, it would mean no telemedicine appointments for mifepristone and no access to the drug after the very first weeks of pregnancy anywhere in the country. Whoa. Okay. Was this decision a surprise? 
Not at all. So the panel had already issued a preliminary ruling on this case that was similar. And Mm. in the hearing, the three judges who were all appointed by Republican presidents really hammered the attorneys for the FDA and the pharmaceutical company behind Mifepristone. The Alliance Defending Freedom, which is representing the plaintiffs, was thrilled by this ruling and called it a significant victory. The Department of Justice released a statement saying it strongly disagrees with the decision and will be seeking Supreme Court review. Okay. Well, I know that you have been reading this decision, which I understand is like 93 pages long. What stands out to you so far? Well, one really interesting thing about this case is how the plaintiffs explained that they have standing to sue the FDA. They argued mifepristone has side effects, even though the complication rate is very low, and that they as doctors have had to treat patients with those side effects in the past and might have to again in the future. Mary Ziegler is a legal historian at UC Davis. The opinion dedicated over 35 pages to standing and relatively little to the merits of the case, and that's no accident. She says the Fifth Circuit judges spent so much time on this because it's a weak part of the case. She says if doctors say they might be harmed if people take a medication that they're morally opposed to and then have side effects, then the approval of many drugs could be challenged. Like, you know, take, for example, Viagra. If you're a doctor and you've treated someone who's had a complication from Viagra in the past and you feel that that offended your moral or religious beliefs, You can say you have standing to challenge the approval of the drug by saying it could happen again. Mm. She says that's a really broad theory of standing. So in addition to the big effect this case could have on abortion access, it could have a big impact on who can sue on any range of issues. Isn't there a separate case about Mifepristone in the courts right now? Like, what's that one about? Right. So attorneys general from several Democratic-led states sued the FDA from the other direction and said these rules were too restrictive. (laughs) That was heard in Washington state. It has not reached an appeals court yet. Ziegler says the conflicting lower court rulings make it more likely the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have to take this up. And so that's what we're waiting for next. Wait and see. That is NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin. Thank you so much, Selena. Thank you, Elsa. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Adrienne Drazen. Some years ago, Drazen flew overseas with her three young children, who were all between three months and four years old. Her husband was already at her destination, so it was just her and her three kids. When they got off the plane, she was hauling a carry-on suitcase, multiple diaper bags, and her baby in a car seat. They stopped to wait for their stroller. As they waited, Adrian Drazen noticed a family with young children. They looked like they had everything they needed, but they seemed to be waiting for something. And it occurred to me that they were waiting in order to help me. Now, I surely did not want to ask anybody for help, nor did I want to accept their help. I was far too humiliated to accept it easily. So when the other mother said to me, Come on, give me your stroller or give me one of your kids or give me your wheelie. I'm going to give you a hand. My first response was to say, no, 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 I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. I got this. And she looked at me with the most assertive, strong look on her face and said, if you tell me how are you going to get to the baggage carousel with two little kids, an infant, an infant car seat, a stroller, and a wheelie, then I will let you go. But until you tell me how you're going to do this, I'm helping you. Her candor and her insistence on helping me 
and her clarity of mind because of course I could not carry all of those things, including at this point two crying children and a baby. Had I not listened to her, I would have been stuck. I am so grateful for this unsung hero whose name I never got and who I'm sure I never thanked properly. She really saved the day. When I finally saw my husband at the exit of the airport, he looked at me carrying all these things and said, how on earth did you get here with all these things? I said, I, I looked around trying to find her. I said, there was this lady. She, these people, they just helped me. I'm really grateful to that woman. It was such a small thing, I'm sure, in her day. She might not have realized it, but it made me think of her as a fellow proud member of the mom tribe, and we look out for each other. She's really an unsung hero. Adrienne Drazen lives in Montreal, Canada. You can find more stories like this one on the My Unsung Hero podcast. And to share the story of your unsung hero, visit myunsunghero.org for instructions on how to send a voice memo. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. Russia's invasion of Ukraine calculates the agony of war in many ways. Lives lost, homes destroyed, families turned into refugees. Yet there's also trauma that's harder to measure, a collective mental health crisis. How Ukrainians are coping and what's giving some psychologists hope on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen on air, stream on your phone, or try asking your smart speaker to play your NPR member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, the Inflation Reduction Act was signed one year ago. It was supposed to move the country away from fossil fuels, and supporters say it's working. We are talking about investment that's rebuilding supply chains, not just for solar, but for electric vehicles. The impact of the Inflation Reduction Act in its first year coming up on WBUR. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture this summer. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. Our damp day should lead to a damp night tonight. Drizzle off and on. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, gray once again. Light rain should make it to about 77 degrees for a high. Friday, even milder, could reach the mid-80s, but we could get caught up in a few thunderstorms or at least rain. With a little luck, skies should clear out in time for the weekend. 71 degrees now in the Boston area. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. News headlines from NPR are next at 530. 
The U.S. is investing tens of billions of dollars in Ukraine's fight against Russia. From weapons to humanitarian aid, how does Washington keep track? You can't spend that much money without there being waste, fraud, and abuse. It's just as simple as that. We ask a government watchdog for lessons learned from another war front in Afghanistan. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. North Korea state news agency says an American soldier crossed into the country last month to protest discrimination at home. The Pentagon says it can't verify that report, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The report carried by KCNA was the first time North Korea has publicly acknowledged holding private Travis King. It quotes King as saying he wanted refuge in North Korea because of inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination in the army. Last month, King was due to return from South Korea to Fort Bliss to face disciplinary action. Instead, he went on a tour of the demilitarized zone and ran across the border to the north. The U.S. has been working through its diplomatic channels to try to bring King home. A State Department spokesperson says the U.S. cannot verify the comments attributed to King in the North Korean media. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Federal Reserve policymakers are encouraged by signs that inflation is coming down, but as NPR's Scott Horsley tells us, the Fed may not be done raising interest rates just yet. Minutes from the Fed's most recent meeting show that policymakers welcome signs that prices are no longer climbing as fast as they had been. But they're not yet convinced that inflation's headed all the way back down to the Fed's target rate of 2%. The central bank's rate-setting committee voted unanimously last month to raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point. The minutes show that a couple of policymakers would have been willing to leave the benchmark rate unchanged. The central bank will get more information about both inflation and the job market before its next rate-setting meeting in September. Minutes show a number of policymakers stress that the Fed needs to weigh the risk of raising rates too aggressively against the possibility of not doing enough to get prices under control. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished lower on Wall Street. The Dow was down about half a percent. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. COVID-19 cases have been spiking in greater Boston over the last month as a new variant of the coronavirus becomes more common. But on WBUR's Radio Boston today, a prominent infectious disease expert said there is no reason to be alarmed. Here's WBUR's Kyrie Thompson. City data shows COVID cases in Boston have increased more than 90% over the last two weeks since the onset of a new variant called EG5. But Dr. Ashish Jha, dean of Brown University School of Public Health and former coordinator of the Biden administration's COVID response, says new variants are both inevitable and nothing to worry about yet. If one of them is really different, if it will escape our vaccines, if it's make our uh, treatments not effective, that will be the moment we need to sound the alarm and say we've got a real problem. EG5 is not that. Ja maintains that getting vaccinated and taking new treatments like Paxlovid can help prevent hospitalizations from the disease. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Kyrie Thompson. Methuen School Superintendent says she's not sure how many students will be enrolled in the city's public school system this fall. That's in part due to an unknown number of children from immigrant families who are being housed in hotels in the city. 
The Eagle Tribune reports that Methuen's new family resource coordinator has been tasked with getting an estimate. Superintendent Brenny Kwong says that she thinks 111 families are currently living at the Days Inn in Methuen. A 35-year-old Quincy man will be held without bail in connection with a random attack on a woman in the South End over the weekend. That was determined today at a dangerousness hearing for Amos Sykes. He's accused of repeatedly punching a woman and to tr- trying to take her clothes off after grabbing her from behind as she walked down Columbus Avenue Saturday night. Sykes is due back in court next month. For the seventh year in a row, UMass Amherst has taken the cake for the best campus dining in the country. That's according to an annual survey of students. It was conducted by the Princeton Review. The director of residential dining is Garrett DiStefano. He says that the dining department's secret sauce is the passion and diversity of its staff. We have 20 different languages that are spoken in all of our dining commons. We have people who hail from all around the world. So they're the subject matter experts when it comes to different global cuisines. So we give them the opportunity to really showcase these different meals. And the authenticity is there. He says most popular dishes are the global ones, including ramen from Southeast Asia, pupusas from Latin America, and chicken tikka masala from India. Somerville leaders broke ground today on a major redesign of the Somerville Junction Park. The renovation will more than double the park's green space to nearly one and a half acres by removing asphalt areas. The redesign will allow the city to add picnic tables, bike racks, and a bike repair station. Construction is expected to continue through next winter. 71 degrees now, clouds in a big way tonight, tomorrow, maybe Friday as well. Lows tonight in the mid-60s for tomorrow. We could reach the mid-70s and then Friday even warmer, up in the mid-80s, often on rain throughout that period. Finally, we could see sunshine again over the weekend. Again, 71 degrees in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. It's been one year since President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. The legislation is meant to reinvigorate the U.S. economy and help address climate change by moving the country away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. But a year in, has it really helped the U.S. properly deal with the threat of climate change? Well, earlier today, I spoke with Gina McCarthy. She's the former climate policy advisor for President Biden and helped shape the law. And I asked her if the scale of the act is really achievable, given that there have been concerns over obtaining enough raw materials to transition to more renewable sources, materials like lithium, nickel, cobalt and copper. There's already international discussions, and, and it started even before the IRA was completed, about how do we understand all of these supply chains. And really, the Inflation Reduction Act was about basically bringing them back home again. And so there are going to be challenges without question moving forward. But right now, 
all we're seeing is remarkable private sector investment. I mean, we are talking about investment that's rebuilding supply chains here in the United States, not just for solar, but for electric vehicles. We're talking about wind now that's being developed in the US. And even in New York, we have now wind turbines being constructed. It's just amazing opportunities but right now. Do you think enough of the American public actually knows what the Inflation Reduction Act is. I mean, a Washington Post University of Maryland poll released last week found that 71% of the people who responded knew little or absolutely nothing about the Inflation Reduction Act. So, why do you think that is? Well, it's new. There's a lot in it. And frankly, when you have something like this go through the legislature and get signed by the president, it makes it important, but not a done deal right? Families need to understand the benefits here. They need to understand the tax credits available so they can have rooftop solar and heat pumps and improve their energy efficiency, get electric vehicles, whether they're new or they're used. And so there's rebates that are open to consumers, but they won't know that unless we do outreach. Local governments need to engage. State governments need to engage. Well, let's talk about how to compel more action at the state level. I mean, there is an urgent need for more resources to combat climate change, to facilitate this transition away from fossil fuels. But because of stalled conversations with Republicans in Congress, I imagine that there's even more pressure for the federal government to collaborate with Republicans at the state level. But how does the Biden administration engage with states where legislation is still in place that enforces reliance on fossil fuels? We're learning some lessons here. You know, in the Inflation Reduction Act, people were worried that maybe red states and and Republican leaders in those states wouldn't take advantage of, of these resources. That's proven to be very incorrect because it's real money that really matters that will benefit families. So part of the challenge we have here is just to try to depoliticize this. Now, I know that may sound like a fantasy, but money is money. Challenge, challenges that we are seeing at the local level, challenges we're seeing about drought in the U.S., heat that we've never seen before. People are getting it. They understand it. What we need to do is support them in how we can all work together to make the kind of change and shift to clean energy that we need. I do feel like we keep having conversations about the need to have more conversations about climate change. But it's unclear to me how the conversation with Republicans is actually shifting on climate change. Can you talk about how the Inflation Reduction Act, if at all, has changed those conversations? Or how can the Biden administration in the future try to change that conversation among Republicans? The way in which the Inflation Reduction Act was designed was to make sure that resources would be available and provided to every red and blue state. And what we're seeing now is announcements of projects being constructed, groundbreakings are happening with Republicans and Democrats in attendance. Because what we're seeing is that the Inflation Reduction Act makes these things real to people. It makes these investments something that people can see and feel and touch and become hopeful about again. You know, we have so much challenges with the droughts and the heat and other climate-related impacts. 
that, you know, it could make people turn off this conversation. The Inflation Reduction Act said climate change is a challenge, but we can meet it because we have the technologies and practices and policies that we can put in place that will make the world hopeful again. Gina McCarthy. She's President Biden's former chief advisor on domestic climate change policy and the new managing co-chair of America is All In. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Elsa. This week, Russia's central bank announced a significant hike in the country's key interest rate. The move comes as the government tries to stem a months-long slide of the ruble currency due to the sanctions Western countries have imposed over invasion of Ukraine. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines reports. The ruble has shed more than a third of its value this year, but alarm bells didn't go off until the Russian currency hit triple digits to the dollar, 100 rubles to the dollar this week. They're laughing at us overseas, says Vladimir Solovyov, a key Kremlin propagandist on his daily talk show. The ruble, said Solovyov, is now one of the worst currencies in the world, thanks to a central bank that won't even bother to tell the people what's happening. Russian economist Maxim Mironov, a professor at the IE Business School in Madrid, says blaming bureaucrats to deflect blame from the Kremlin is a tactic that dates back to the czars. The Tsar is good, but uh, he's uh, ate a bet. Mironov says it is the Kremlin that's responsible for Russia's currency woes, just as it's responsible for the invasion of Ukraine in February of last year that prompted them. Because before February, uh, exchange rate of ruble was uh, really market rate, so you have supply and demand. Starting from February, it stopped being a normal currency. Neronov says the Kremlin started manipulating the ruble's value, imposing restrictions and price controls amid Western sanctions. Yet that solution has run into trouble over the past year, as losses fueled by massive military spending and a Western price cap on Russian oil exports have cut into energy revenues. In an emergency session this week, the central bank moved to prop up the currency by raising the key interest rate three and a half percentage points, up to 12 percent, a jump that nudged the ruble's value up slightly. Whether that calms the waters remains to be seen. The Kremlin may even have an interest in keeping the ruble relatively weak. It allows the government to maintain a surge in wartime spending at nearly half the price, albeit at the risk of inflation and a growing budget deficit. Still, the economist Mironov says Russia's economy faces no danger of immediate collapse or of Putin's war chest running dry as many in the West have wished. I think it's wishful thinking. Uh, he's going to have enough money for the war and I wouldn't bank on the possibility that he's going to run out of money. Never. More likely, he argues, the Russian leader will scrimp on social programs that could make life more difficult for average Russians as the war drags on. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The annual Fancy Farm Church Picnic is a quintessential Kentucky political tradition. Recent health concerns for U.S. senators, like for Kentucky's Mitch McConnell, have brought attention to how old the Senate is. The median age is 65, which is a record high, and with an aging Congress comes the possibility of vacancies. Louisville Public Media's Sylvia Goodman reports on Kentucky's unique appointment system should a need arise. 
The annual Fancy Farm Church Picnic is a quintessential Kentucky political tradition, and according to organizer, Senator Mitch McConnell has not missed the event since he started coming, assuming the Senate wasn't still in session. But before McConnell took the stage recently, many in the audience did not know if he would even be there. I'm not a personal supporter of Mitch McConnell, but I have been concerned for his health and well-being. So I think it, it would be a good sign if he does make an appearance. Kristen Wilcox, who says she's politically independent, is referring to recent health concerns for the influential senator. Last month, McConnell abruptly froze mid-sentence for about 30 seconds during a news conference. That's after a hospitalization in March for a concussion and minor rib fracture. But McConnell did show up and face the raucous crowd of thousands of Kentuckians. For those of you who keep count, this is my 28th fancy farm. And just that morning, McConnell assured Republicans that, quote, it's not my last. Republican Daniel Ripley, who attended the picnic, said he was glad to see the 81-year-old senator there. But McConnell's health issues have made him consider things like term limits more seriously. He looked a little feeble up there on stage. <laughs> Mr. McConnell's been in there a long time. He's done a lot of good things, but still, I think they should have term limits just like the president. For most of Kentucky's history, the governor simply appointed someone in the case of a vacancy in the Senate. That's happened seven times. But in March of 2021, the state's legislature, backed by McConnell, put in place a new system, one that's quite rare in the U.S. Now the party of the vacating senator gets to furnish the governor with a list of three options, and the governor may then pick someone off of that list. Voters deserve to have someone who has similar viewpoints to them appointed rather than allowing a Democratic governor to appoint a Democrat to the seat who, who doesn't reflect those views at all. That's Trey Watson, a Republican political consultant and former Kentucky GOP communications director. He says Republicans in the state don't see Kentucky's Democratic governor, Andy Bashir as willing to compromise. Andy Bashir has not necessarily worked very well with this legislature, and so I think there was some concern there that there wouldn't be that sort of collaboration. Only seven states have adopted this system. According to Vikram Amar, a constitutional law professor at UC Davis, the 17th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution was created expressly to remove senatorial appointment power from state legislatures. If there's one thing that's clear about the 17th Amendment is the reason we didn't like indirect election by the state legislature is because we thought the legislatures were too influenced by partisan bosses. Amar says these limitations on a governor's appointment power haven't been challenged in court yet. Anna White, an attorney who used to work for the Kentucky Democratic Party, says she believes it's simply a method of watering down the governor's power. White says she expects that if McConnell were to vacate his seat, Bashir would likely bring the law before the courts. So I would advise the governor step up, challenge it immediately as soon as you are asked that question rather than simply taking the list of three, picking one, and then bickering over who that should be. McConnell has said he has no intention of leaving his term, which ends in January 2027 early. Without a vacancy, the governor likely won't be able to challenge the constitutionality of the Kentucky state law. For NPR News, I'm Sylvia Goodman in Louisville, Kentucky. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Nice to have you with us this evening here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, what NPR has learned about conditions at immigration detention facilities in the U.S. from reports by the U.S.'s own inspectors. That's still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Geo Swaby. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. 
The Red Sox take on the Nationals tonight in Washington, D.C. It's the second game of a three-game set. Sox won the opener last night. James Paxton gets the start for Boston tonight. He will face Mackenzie Gore for the Nats. In the forecast, lots of clouds, lots of drizzle this evening, overnight tonight as well. Just about 65 degrees for a low. Tomorrow should be a lot like today, foggy and cloudy, but it could make it up to 77 degrees. And then same thing for Friday, with the addition of possible thunderstorms, could warm to the mid-80s. It is 71 degrees now in Boston. The time is 549. Former President Donald Trump faces his fourth indictment in four months, this time for trying to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. It's much bigger than Watergate. Trump wanted to stay in office. He wanted to use Georgia as part of that plan. And so this is very different and much more troubling. I'm Deborah Becker. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The northwest U.S. is facing a record-breaking heat wave. Washington, Oregon, and Montana have all hit new daily high temperatures. Austin Amistoy with Montana Public Radio reports. It hit 103 degrees in Missoula, Montana yesterday. A new record. Triple-digit heat is unusual here. Third grader Hazel Riche and her friend are cooling off on the banks of the Clark Fork River. We've been walking up and floating down to that rock. And why are you out playing in the river today? Because it's hot. Yeah, how hot is it? 100 degrees. The high pressure ridge settled over the northwest this week is pushing the mercury to new heights from the Pacific coast to the Missouri River. Daily high temperature records also fell in Washington and Oregon. It was 105 in Eugene yesterday. Spokane hit 102 degrees, Portland 103. National Weather Service meteorologist Jen Kitzmiller says heat like this comes around roughly once in 30 years. Kitzmiller says temperatures are prompting excessive heat warnings across the region, but that's only part of the picture. It's not just about how hot the daytime highs are, but it's also about um, how little it cools off at night. Because if you don't get that cool down at night, then people aren't able to adjust and kind of have a respite from the heat. The Weather Service reports downtown Portland cooled to 74 degrees last night, the warmest overnight low ever for the city. The heat and low humidity is causing the 30-some wildfires in the region to grow, too, and sparking new ones. Kitzmiller says tropical storms in the Pacific helped fuel this latest summer heat wave, but they could help undo it, too. While temperatures are set to stay sky-high through Friday, moisture from the southwest could pull north by early next week, providing some relief. Until then, Missoula mom Carrie Riche will keep taking Hazel down to the river. Got to take a dip like probably every 20 minutes. What do you guys think? You guys go in more. Yeah, she's going again. For NPR News, I'm Austin Amistoy. Award-winning writer, editor, and filmmaker Sandra Guzman once heard an alarming statistic. Every 14 days, an indigenous language dies around the world. And that is, in part, what prompted her to seek out those voices for a new project. They're among the 140 authors, educators, artists, and activists included in a new anthology called Daughters of Latin America. We are one of the most multilingual, multi-ethnic, multiracial, multi-religious regions in the world. And so for me, it was really important to convey that diversity. And these are women who have 
uh, historically have lit and, and guided me. And so why not bring together the voices in one volume? Guzman, along with several of the book's writers and translators, spoke to All Things Considered about some of the poetry in Daughters of Latin America and guided us through a sampling of their work. There are 24 languages in this anthology, the Spanish language and English language, Portuguese, French, but there are also ancestor languages that survived uh, the colonization. So for example, I want you to listen to Rosa Chavez, who is a Maya, Quiche, Cachiquel poet, artist, and activist from Guatemala. And her translator, who translated the text from the Spanish, Gabriela Ramirez Chavez. Speak to me in the language of time. Shake me in the silence of the stars. Wake me early before drifting back to sleep so I can love you with my domesticated tongue. So your barefoot voice plays inside my body. Speak to me with the sun's tongue. Tell me green words that ripen on my skin. Join your name to mine and love me with your two hearts. And here we have Sonia Guignansaka. They are Quichua Cañare poet and culture strategist and activist born in Ecuador and raised in Harlem. And they are reading Runa in translation. There's a longing to write this poem in Quichua. I speak broken Spanish, English with a heavy New York City accent. I wonder if my tongue will ever heal from the breaking, a breaking like when I'm around other Quichuas and I cannot understand them. I wonder sometimes, most times, if I'm real. At age five, I am plucked from Ecuador and flown to the U.S. For a brief moment, I am given a new name and my hair is cut and my burgundy luggage goes missing, so I arrive with nothing. I think that I am nothing through middle school. And in high school, I stop existing. I nest in my mouth quietly. Kinkinka, my mantaki, kanki. I lifted the voices of Puerto Rican writers. When anthologies are curated in the United States, for instance, we are often forgotten. And when anthologies are curated in Latin America, we're also forgotten. So we're in this liminal space. Here is Esmeralda Santiago, who is a Puerto Rican novelist and memoirist. And she's reading the poem, Mi Sangre, My Blood. I've left my blood in 49 states, 27 countries on five continents. These days, my blood fills test tubes and spreads across specimen slides. I bleed to delay death, a sanguine stream to unutterable regions, while my defiant blood pulses in the strangest place of all, my children's veins. I also center the voices of Afro-Latinas because it's really important for me as an Afro-Indigenous woman to include women who have paved the way for us. Mari Grueso Romero is a poet, children's literature author, and Spanish professor out of Colombia. 
Here she is reading her poem in Spanish, and I did the English translation, If God Had Been Born Here. Si Dios hubiese nacido aquí, sería un pescador. If God had been born here, he'd be a fisherman, eat chontaduro, and drink borojo. Maria would be black, big bone like me, and on top of her head would carry a platter of fish, offering at the top of her lungs, through the town streets, to all the town folk. I have silky fish, whole and intact, snapper to eat fried, yato for stewing, toyo for sweating, and cachimbala for tapao. To understand Latin America through the lens of its women is to fully understand the cultures and the people that inhabit this region in different parts of the world. That was Sandra Guzman, along with writers featured in the book Daughters of Latin America, which is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with adoptaclassroom.org to provide funding to high-needs schools and local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Kind of crummy weather a little while longer. Tomorrow should stay overcast with fog and more drizzle. Temperatures in the mid-70s. Friday, a bit of stormy weather possible. Warmer, though, could hit the mid-80s. Right now they're calling for some sunshine over the weekend. WBUR wants to hear from you, so take our listener survey. You can find it at WBUR.org survey. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR has obtained more than 1,600 pages of what had been secret inspection reports on the conditions of the facilities that house detained immigrants. Inspectors report filthy and barbaric conditions. They really show how the government's own inspectors can see the abuses and the level of abuses that are happening in ICE detention. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. More on what the NPR investigation revealed coming up. The priceless connections to Maui's ancient past that were lost to the wildfires. We'll have that story. And then on Marketplace, economists are optimistic about a soft landing for the economy. But what if it doesn't go according to plan? They say, okay, we can see inflation coming down. We're going to start easing off a little bit. All of a sudden, animal spirits get wild. You see financial markets go really, really exuberant. The economic forecast coming up on Marketplace starting at 630. It's now 601. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell says federal and state search and rescue teams are working closely together to help account for those who are still missing after the wildfires on Maui. Given the conditions and the need for additional resources, we will have at least 40 canine search teams on the island in addition to hundreds of search and rescue personnel with more on the way. At least 106 people are confirmed dead. President Biden is to fly to Hawaii next week to meet with survivors. The availability of mifepristone remains unchanged for now, even though a federal appeals court today at least partially upheld a lower court's ruling on the drug used in the most common form of abortion. The appeals court in New Orleans overturned a lower court's decision to revoke the Food and Drug Administration's approval of mifepristone 20 years years ago, but left intact the part of the ruling that would end mifepristone's availability by mail and require a doctor to be present when it's administered. Those restrictions won't take effect right away, though, because the Supreme Court has intervened to preserve the status quo during the legal fight. It's been one year since President Biden signed into law the sweeping climate and social services bill known as the Inflation Reduction Act. Backers call it the most significant piece of climate legislation in U.S. history. NPR's Camila Dominoski reports the law is expected to drive a boom in green energy. The legislation funneled subsidies and tax credits toward a mind-bending array of clean energy projects. The goal? To simultaneously promote U.S.-based manufacturing and accelerate a shift away from fossil fuels. In some parts of the U.S. economy, the impact is already obvious. That's especially true for electric vehicle manufacturing, battery projects, and solar panel components. And while the law was partisan, Democrats supported it, Republicans opposed, those investments are happening in both red and blue states. Other elements of the law are still being worked out, from rebates for low-income households to incentives for some new technologies. Camila Dominoski, NPR News. The Federal Aviation Administration is reviewing SpaceX's report on an April rocket launch that ended with an explosion. Texas Public Radio's Gage Davila reports. Starship exploded four minutes after takeoff from the company's South Texas site, destroying the launch pad and sending concrete for a mile in all directions. The final mishap report is an important step for SpaceX in getting authorization to launch again from that site and requires FAA approval. The agency did not provide a timeline for when this would happen. SpaceX has been adding launch infrastructure to the Boca Chica site in South Texas in preparation for another Starship launch. Last week, the company used a water deluge system during an engine test in possible violation of environmental law. The Texas Commission on Environmental Quality is currently analyzing whether SpaceX needs a permit for the system. For NPR News, I'm Gage Davila in McAllen, Texas. And from Washington, this is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston school officials say they have a fully staffed team of bus drivers for the first time since the pandemic began. As Emily Piper Valilla reports, the district hopes this will mean more students get to school on time. Roughly 600 yellow school buses carrying 20,000 Boston public school students will hit city streets starting next month. Last year's bus driver shortage and Orange Line shutdown kept some kids from getting to class on time. But district leaders said today there are now over 700 bus drivers with another 35 in training. Superintendent Mary Skipper said she hopes that will lead to fewer delays. We're very excited to be fully staffed on the bus driver side um, and to have additional bus drivers in training. That helps to ensure that every bus we have gets out onto the road and that ensures that there's a better on-time performance. Skipper also said adjustments to bus routes could be made. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Emily Piper-Valillo.
Boston City Councilor Kendra Lara is trying to get criminal driving charges against her dropped. In Boston Municipal Court today, Lara's lawyer argued the city councilor was not properly given a copy of the citation against her. That's a violation of state law. Lara is accused of speeding down a residential street in Jamaica Plain in June and then slamming into a house. Police say she did not have a valid driver's license and was operating an unregistered car. She'll be back in court next month after the city's preliminary election, in which she says she will be a candidate. The governor's office is awarding $15.5 million to organizations across the state that provide child development services. 81 of them will get grants. The funding is to be used in part to expand access to quality, affordable child care, address mental health issues among young people, and help families in emergency shelter. The Family Nurturing Center in Boston received the largest award, just over $920,000. State Senate President Karen Spilka calls the damage from last week's flooding in the Merrimack Valley devastating. She was among several lawmakers today who toured the area businesses damaged by the torrential rains. She says she was awed by the damage sustained by one particular restaurant in North Andover. The impact is total devastation. I mean, their inventory is gone. Some of it floated away, literally. The business needs to be shut down. Some of the flooding was so intense that it just blew right through windows that were towards the ground. Spilka says they'll be working with both the state and federal government to see what options might be available. She thinks the damage will meet the threshold to trigger federal help. Worcester's Indian Lake will be closed tomorrow so it can be treated to prevent the growth of blue-green algae. City officials are warning people to avoid swimming, fishing, or boating on the lake and to keep pets out of the water as well. Earlier this summer, the city unveiled a new treatment system to clean up pollution that comes from stormwater runoff. The lake should reopen Friday. And if you live in Boston and have ideas on how to improve public transit, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants to hear from you. She put out a call today on social media for people to nominate themselves or others to represent the city on the MBTA's board of directors. The state's 2024 budget included the addition of a city representative on that board. Nominations are due September 5th. In the forecast overnight tonight, damp once again, drizzly off and on. Lows in the mid-60s tomorrow, gray skies, light rain, could make it to about 77 degrees for a high. And then Friday, cloudy once again, maybe some thunderstorms, but warmer temperatures reaching in the mid-80s. 71 degrees now in Boston at 608. WBUR supporters include the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, for 30 years, committed to advancing educational innovations and research that improves pre-K to 12 learning. More at edutopia.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. The Biden administration is under intense political pressure from Republicans over immigration, who accuse the president of being too lenient toward migrants. Now the administration is locking up more unauthorized immigrants and asylum seekers in detention facilities. And NPR has exclusively obtained more than 1,600 pages of confidential inspection reports examining conditions inside those facilities. They describe barbaric practices, negligent medical care, racist abuse, and filthy conditions. NPR's Tom Dreisbach reports, and just a warning, the story includes some disturbing details. There's this home video of Kamiyar Samimi in the 1990s playing with his two young daughters on a slide at a little green park in Colorado dusk. He was born in Iran, moved to the U.S. to study computer science in the 1970s. 
He got a green card, built a family. And on this video, he tells his daughter in Farsi to wave hi to grandma back in Iran. He loved it here. That's one of his daughters, Neta Samimi Gomez. Neta told me that growing up, you could always find her dad with a can of Pepsi in his hand, smelling like oil from his job as a mechanic, watching NASCAR and other American TV. We would sit down in the summers and watch Law and Order. That was our thing. Like, <laughs> he wanted me to become a lawyer. Because of Law and Order? Because of Law and Order, yeah. Kamiar Samimi also struggled with drugs. It started as a kid back in Iran when he was given opium for tooth pain. In the U.S., he was prescribed methadone, which he took to manage opioid use disorder for more than two decades. He and Netta were close, but by the time she was an adult, they didn't see each other all the time. Then came November 2017. We had been trying to reach him to invite him over for Thanksgiving, and we weren't able to get a hold of him on his phone at all. You must have been worried during yes. that time. And then even more so worried when I found out he was detained by ICE. Immigration and Customs Enforcement had arrested her dad and taken him to an ICE detention center in Aurora, Colorado. Kamiyar Samimi was a lawful permanent resident, but back in 2005, he pleaded guilty to possessing less than a gram of cocaine and was sentenced to community service. Twelve years later, ICE decided that conviction meant they could deport Kamiyar. His family was worried, but thought it was just a paperwork issue. Then two weeks later, an ICE officer dropped off a business card at Netta's work and said to call. The officer picked up the phone and said, we don't know that if anyone's been in touch with you, but we want you to know that your father passed away over the weekend. ICE had waited two days before contacting the family. The officer said Kamiyar died of cardiac arrest, and it fell to Netta to break the news to her mom. I can still hear my mom scream on the phone when I told her. It's just like always under my skin. At first, the private corporation that runs the detention center, Geo Group, said they acted appropriately. But Netta didn't buy it. It just didn't make sense. She went to the ACLU, and they sued. They discovered ICE records showing that when Kamiar Samimi was brought to the facility, the staff cut him off from methadone cold turkey. It was a basic need for him to live. I mean, he didn't get it, and then he couldn't live. Sweats turned to nausea, turned to vomiting, including vomiting blood clots. He screamed for help. The detention center's doctor never examined him. The staff did use a protocol for a patient going through withdrawal, but for alcohol, not opioids. On the day he died, a nurse looked at him and said, he's dying, and still waited hours before calling 911. By the time paramedics arrived, Kamiar Samimi had already stopped breathing. Geo Group settled Netta's lawsuit confidentially. They did not admit wrongdoing. Did you ever get an apology from ICE? No. No, absolutely not. But inside the government, in a confidential report, a medical expert investigating civil rights complaints found a series of astonishing failures in this case. NPR spent more than three years seeking a copy of this report and others from investigators examining ICE detention for the Department of Homeland Security across the country. The government, under both Trump and Biden, fought their release. So we sued. Eventually, a federal judge found that the government violated the Freedom of Information Act and ordered them to send us the documents. These documents are written by experts in medicine, mental health care, and use of force, and they write unflinchingly. It was actually this report that first led me to call Netta. I, I assume you've never seen this, probably. I so don't think can... that I have. The report says, quote, the complete lack of medical leadership, supervision, and care that this detainee was exposed to is simply astonishing 
and stands out as one of the most egregious failures to provide optimal care in my experience. It truly appears that this system failed at every aspect of care possible. It says it right here. At every step of the way, my dad was failed. This was not the only problem this inspector found at the Aurora Ice Processing Center. In another case, the inspector found that a detainee was diagnosed with HIV but was never told. The inspector wrote that these problems could force a normal health system to close. But this facility is still open and holds around 700 immigrants in detention. And the problems there are not unique. The 1,600 pages of government inspection reports we obtained date from 2017 to 2019 and cover more than two dozen different ICE detention facilities across 16 states. They found grimy medical instruments, a cockroach on a medical exam table, negligent mental health care, inappropriate strip searches, and pepper spraying of mentally ill detainees, and racist abuse. These reports are incredibly damning. Eunice Cho is with the ACLU, and she has spent years visiting clients in ICE detention and seeing conditions firsthand. These facilities lock up asylum seekers, unauthorized immigrants, as well as permanent residents the government deems deportable. Legally, ICE detention is not like prison. It cannot serve as punishment. The goal is to make sure immigrants show up for their court dates. But Cho says the reports NPR obtained show how punishing the conditions are. They really show how the government's own inspectors can see the abuses and the level of abuses that are happening in ICE detention. Do you think the problems identified in these inspection reports, are they outliers? Unfortunately, this is not an outlier. I think this is the tip of the iceberg. And if anything, conditions have probably gotten worse. A White House spokesperson noted that these reports relate to conditions in the prior administration. But immigration attorneys told me that the COVID-19 pandemic helped make those conditions worse. I talked with several immigrants who have been locked up at different facilities. One man told me he was denied his heart medication by jail staff and suffered a heart attack. A woman told me how she was separated from her family, taken off her meds for bipolar disorder, and she said detention was hell on earth, and she has PTSD. Under Biden, 11 people have died in ICE detention so far, including one at the same facility where Kamiar Samimi died. I went with the address of the emergency. Last October, staff at the Aurora Ice Processing Center called 911. We obtained the audio, and it reveals confusion, gaps in communication, and wasted time with someone's life on the line. Can you give me the address again one more time? It's not populating correctly. One one nine zero one. One second. First, the detention officer gets the facility's address, where he worked, wrong. It takes more than a full minute to confirm the location. And then the detention officer does not know the patient's medical issue. So we don't know what this person's symptoms are at all, is that correct? No, I don't know. I'm in control, so I can't read Okay. They just had to call an ambulance? Yes. Experts in emergency medicine told me that information is critical for paramedics to effectively respond. On the call, the officer also can't answer other basic questions, like the patient's age. Can we guess about how old this person is? This is the officer places 911 on hold. It takes more than a minute and a half before he says, Hey, I'm in late 20s. He said late 20s. That was wrong. Melvin Ariel Calero Mendoza was 39 years old and from Nicaragua. ICE records say he had been complaining of pain and swelling in his leg for weeks before this emergency. When paramedics arrived, he was taken to a hospital and pronounced dead. A later autopsy revealed he died of a pulmonary embolism. It's unclear if delays on the 911 call contributed to his death, but his family's lawyer told me 
The depth of indifference displayed on the call was shocking at a moment where every second counts. Geo Group sent us a statement offering their condolences to Calero Mendoza's family, as well as Kamiar Samimi's. They said they strive to treat detainees with dignity and respect, though they could not comment on specific cases. Regardless, Eunice Cho of the ACLU says that the government is ultimately responsible for what happens in ICE detention. What is in these reports really should be a wake-up call for everyone, especially the Biden administration. When Joe Biden ran for president, and early in his administration, he promised to end contracts with the private companies that operate most of the ICE detention centers. Private detention centers, they should not exist. A spokesperson for the Department of Homeland Security noted that the administration has closed a few of the most notorious facilities, and some local jails separately ended their contracts with ICE, but Biden has not kept that campaign promise. More than 90 percent of immigrant detainees are currently in private facilities. And overall, there are about 30,000 people in ICE detention, around twice as many as when Biden took office. For weeks, we asked both ICE and the White House for an interview to ask about their policies. They declined. So NPR's Asma Khalid asked White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about the Biden campaign promise at a press briefing. Uh, you know, I think the president is still committed to what he laid out during his uh, campaign. Just don't have anything here to share beyond that, beyond his commitment uh, that he is uh, certainly going to continue to stay focused on. But I just don't The White House also sent us a statement saying they are committed to moving away from for-profit ICE detention and noted that they have increased the use of alternatives to detention, like GPS monitoring. The statement from ICE said that they take their commitment to promoting safe, secure, humane environments for those in their custody very seriously. Meanwhile, critics of Biden's border policy, mostly Republicans, argue the president has been too lenient and believe more people should be sent to ICE detention. Neta Samimi Gomez has been watching this debate play out, and the reports of another death at the same facility where her dad died hit her hard. More than anything, I just don't want anybody else to deal with what I've been dealing with for the last five years. Nobody should have to feel this way. Now she says what worries her most is forgetting the sound of her father's voice. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Still to come on All Things Considered and Marketplace, engineers at the University of Texas have discovered a low-cost way of generating hydrogen gas. But can it make a difference in the fight against climate change? Marketplace starts at 6.30 tonight. On Wall Street, stocks slid for a second day. The Dow dropped about a half percent. The S&P fell about three-quarters of a percent, and the Nasdaq was down more than one and a tenth percent. UMass Lowell is getting a big boost for its aerospace program. The state is giving the university $5.5 million to launch a research center for building and testing miniature satellites. It will also study imaging optics, sensors, and navigation systems for space missions. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org cars. 
Kind of damp out there right now. Damp it should stay overnight tonight. Lots of clouds around. Drizzle off and on. Tomorrow, gray again with light rain. Should make it to about 77 for a high tomorrow. Even milder for Friday. Should reach the mid-80s, but still lots of clouds around. Maybe a thunderstorm or two on Friday. With a little luck, skies should clear out in time for the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR at 621. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. So far in Maui, more than 100 people are reported dead, and many hundreds are still unaccounted for after the fires. It's going to be a long time before we know the totality of what was lost in Lahaina, but we do know, as NPR's Janaki Mehta reports, that priceless connections to the island's ancient past are now lost. The Na'akaine O'Maui Cultural and Research Center was home to the vestiges of ancient Hawaii before European colonization. Old documents, maps, genealogy, books that were actually signed by our kings. Our culture center was the hub for a lot of our native Hawaiian people longing for the past. To Kiamoku Kapu, the center meant even more than the rare, tangible treasures of his ancestry. It was also a place of gathering for his community. It was a place of worship, a place of traditional cultural protocols. It was on the main thoroughfare in Lahaina, which was once the capital of the ancient Hawaiian kingdom. Kapu was the center's steward. I'm the curator, uh, president, the janitor, literally everything. I'm the Two days after the fire, Kapu returned to the rubble to see what was left of Lahaina Town. Oh, man. All my neighbors, gone. Our churches, apartment building that flourished with generations of families, gone. He went to the site of the cultural center with hopes of recovering some artifacts, but he found very little. Carving images made out of stone, you know, that made it, one of them. And stones that was given to me personally by different chiefs from the South Pacific, from New Zealand, from Tahiti, from Samoa. So a great loss. Some of the rare books and documents preserved at the center weren't just history. They were instructive materials for indigenous people fighting for ownership of the land and water that belonged to their ancestors. Kapu himself was involved in litigation that ended up at the state Supreme Court and won him the rights to hold on to the land that his family has owned since the days of the Hawaiian Kingdom. He brought that knowledge to other community members at the cultural center. That was a great advantage to use the center to bring families in and teach them what I've done yeah, in order to help them get their lands back. And it's been working. All those documents are gone. Kapu points his finger to his right temple. All I have is what I have in here. I just cried like we got erased. He tells me he hasn't had the time to process the loss. He's already been through three other fires on Maui before this one. I cannot sleep. Wake up nightmares. Wake up thinking that everything is fine, only to wake up. It's not, but I guess that's the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing, because i got to stay busy. (laughs) 
What he's doing is working with Maui's emergency management agency, running one of the distribution centers in Lahaina with several members of his family. Okay, yeah, we get enough quality for Getting food, supplies, and water to those affected by the fire. Kapu says indigenous people bring a unique understanding to this work. We know exactly what the general community is feeling now because we know about trauma, we know about being displaced. Kapu is also serving as a liaison between the local government and indigenous community. He's on an advisory council to the mayor as the county navigates the response to this fire. There's a lot of distrust right now, and our responsibility as advisories in the community is to alleviate that distrust. Because if we don't, it's going to be chaotic. He plans to continue working with the government as the recovery and rebuilding process continues. He's wary of the potential for payouts for property that was lost and is encouraging community members to try and hold on to their land. What is it going to take to rebuild the capital of the kingdom once again? What is it going to take? This is a legacy we're talking about. What is a payoff for losing that? Just days after the fire, Kapu is trying to hold on to hope that Lahaina will be rebuilt with respect to its rich Hawaiian history. I think it can be done right, but we just got to get our leaders to the table. Until then, Kapu says he will keep a watchful eye over the land beneath the cultural center's remains, the land of historic Lahaina town, the land of his ancestors. In Maui, I'm Janaki Mehta, NPR News. Australians have been cheering so hard for their women's soccer team, the Matildas, or the Tillies as they're nicknamed, that there is even a name for going horse during the Women's World Cup. It's called Tilly Voice. The rise of the Matildas' popularity has been called a feminist cultural reckoning in Australia, where women's sports had long been sidelined in broadcast media. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from the West Australian port city of Fremantle. At the neighbourhood pub called the local, men and women get into the mood. Many are decked in Australia's sporting colours, green and gold. It's on beanies, scarves, t-shirts. A table of women count down for the semi-finals to begin. Australia's Matildas versus England's Lionesses. The crowd goes wild as Australia's top scorer, Sam Kerr, charges, striking the ball into the goal. The crowd's affection is sincere. It's also new. The Matildas have only been a household name since the World Cup began nearly four weeks ago as they churn through opponents. Australians pack pubs, stadiums, viewing venues. They broke television records. But in the semi-finals, the English were ahead. The crowd tried to flag sinking spirits with the rendition of Waltzing Matilda, the unofficial anthem, and the team's namesake. No use. The English team, the Lionesses, won the game. Regardless, many were just pleased so many came to cheer on women playing soccer, like Cassie Gunthorpe, she's 29. To come on down and see like the women just do so well, and to see a pub absolutely packed, it's just amazing. It's lovely to watch so many people turn out for a women's football match. That could be the Matildas' lasting impact, people turning up. 
Megan Morris is a sports journalist. She says, media executives long neglected women's sports because they didn't think people would watch it. This tournament's just come along and blown a lot of those old assumptions out of the water and shown just how much people do want to watch women's sport when it's visible, when they know about it. Back in the pub, one young man shakes his head as reality sinks in. The Matildas are out. The grand final will be England versus Spain on Sunday. The young man turns to his friend and says, fine, I'm cheering on Spain then as if it was the most normal thing in the world and not a cultural shift that began only four weeks ago. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Fremantle. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Marketplace is coming up next. In the forecast, lots of clouds and off and on drizzle a while longer. Tomorrow should be overcast again. Fog and more drizzle. Could inch to the mid-70s, though, tomorrow. And for Friday, a bit of stormy weather possible. Could have some thunderstorms in the afternoon on Friday. Should be warmer, though, with temperatures breaking into the 80s. 71 degrees in Boston at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com slash NPR.